pals, how's it going? Thank you so much for joining me for a new episode of Man Eaters, the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are animals. I'm your host, James, aka uh, the Jimbley Rainforest, <laughs> aka uh, the man with no flame. Uh, I have no flame. I cannot light matches, I'm too scared. Uh, and yes, welcome to a new episode. Today we are talking about the Savo Man Eaters, which were a pair of maneless African lions, uh, which terrorized the construction of a railway in the very last years of the 1800s. Um, this is quite a lengthy story, so we're not gonna spend a lot of time <laughs> in this introduction, we are gonna jump straight into it. But before we do that, I just wanna mention that my primary source um, for the research for this story um, was actually a book called, and I want to get the name right, so let me see. The book is called The Man Eaters of Savo, um, which is actually written by J.H. Patterson, who actually is the guy who hunted and killed down the lions. So it is a primary source. It's basically a first-hand, a first-hand uh, re- telling of how he uh, took down these man-eating lions um, and all the adventures he went on. The lions really only appear in the first nine chapters of the book. Um, if you are interested in reading it, it is available free on Wikisource. That's where I got it. Um, it's... where are we up to? Yes, so I only read the first few chapters that sort of involved the lions, um, but there are like... <laughs> I'm just looking now. There's other chapters that look really interesting. Uh, A Night with the Hippo. That sounds sexy. Um, an infuriated rhino. <laughs> rhino? These these sound really cool. I'm probably going to read this entire book at some point. Um, but yeah, like I said, um, I mainly focus on the first few chapters. Um, there is so much information about these man-eaters, guys. It, it, it's a little overwhelming. Um, There's no way I could possibly fit every single detail into the story um, within the time frame that we have for this podcast. So I'm going to try and be as concise as possible while also um, going over everything that I think is important in the story. But like I said, if you are interested in reading more about this, um, you can visit um, The Man Eaters of Savo on Wikisource. I'll link it in the description for this episode um, so you can you can find that very easily. But it is a good book. It's pretty well written. Um, and yeah, like, you know, one day in the future, maybe I'll revisit this story and do like an hour-long episode where I can go into a lot more detail. But yeah, I think I've done a pretty good job of getting, <laughs> getting all the important details out there. So without further ado... <laughs> what? Without further ado... Adieu. Without that, um, let's jump into the story. This is The Man-Eating Lions of Savo. It's the late 1890s in Kenya. Construction of the Kenyan-Ugandan Rail Corridor is underway. The project is deeply unpopular in the UK, with many decrying it as exorbitantly expensive and not returning much benefit to the people of England. British MP Henry Labourshaw has just published this scathing poem about the project. What it will cost, no words can express. What is its object, no brain can suppose. Where it will start from, no one can guess. Where is it going, nobody knows. What is the use of it, no one can conjecture. What it will carry, there is none who can define. And in spite of George Curzon's superior lecture, it is clearly naught but a lunatic line. To ensure that construction of a railway bridge over the Savo River runs smoothly, the Uganda Rail Committee, based in London, commissions John Henry Patterson to oversee the construction effort. Patterson arrived in Mombasa on March 1st, 1898. He was quickly directed to a region inland called Savo. His mission was to oversee the construction of a permanent structure, which would become Savo Station, and to finish construction of all other railway elements for 50 kilometers on either side of a temporary bridge. 
Patterson felt confident the job could be carried out on time and with minimal setbacks. He had no idea just how wrong he was. A mere two days after arriving in Savo, Patterson started receiving reports of men being carried off by a pair of maneless African lions. Initially, Patterson didn't give much weight to these stories and thought it was far more likely that these men had met foul play at the hands of some of their co-workers. This theory was quickly dispelled after a Sikh man named Ungan Singh was attacked in his tent and carried off into the night. The next morning a search party was formed. Patterson and his brigade of mostly Indian and native African workers quickly found the remains of Singh. In his book, Patterson writes, The ground all around was covered with blood and morsels of flesh and bone, but the unfortunate Jemadir's head had been left intact, save for the holes made by the lion's tusks on seizing him, and lay a short distance away from the other remains, the eyes staring wide open with a startled, horrified look in them. The place was considerably cut up, and on closer examination we found that two lions had been there, and had probably struggled for possession of the body. It was the most gruesome sight I had ever seen. Over the next few nights, the lions returned and carried out more attacks on the workmen, or coolies, as Patterson refers to them in his book. The campsites around the rail corridor were spread out at this point of construction, so the lions had a range of up to 12 kilometers around Savo to work in. Each night, Patterson would sit up in a tree with a rifle and a shotgun, hoping to get a shot at the lions. The big cats could either sense which campsite Patterson was covering, or had incredible luck, as they always struck tents that were unprotected by a sniper. Patterson notes that in this early stage of the struggle with the lions, not every attempt made by the man-eaters was successful. One incident occurred where a lion pounced on an Indian trader who was riding on a donkey at night. The man and the donkey were knocked over, but somehow in the attack the lion had entangled itself with a rope tied to several empty oil canisters. The clattering of the metal cans frightened the lion so much that it ran off without harming either the trader or the donkey. Another attack failed when one of the lions burst through the roof of a tent, and rather than grabbing a worker, beat into a sack of rice and carried it off. The rice was found just outside the tent where it was dropped, presumably when the lion realized its mistake. Even though lion attacks were frightening and a cause for concern, the majority of the workers were relatively unfazed by the events of the last few weeks. At this stage in construction, there were around two to 3,000 workers in Savo, and most of the men thought that the odds of the lions picking them in particular out of thousands of options was highly unlikely. This good mood disappeared when the construction of a permanent structure was completed and the bulk of the men were sent down the line to continue working on tracks and other structures. This left only a few hundred men at Savo to carry out the rest of the work. By this time, workers had started to build thorn fences or bombers around their tents. They were built thick and high, but it didn't dissuade the lions, who often leapt over or broke through the bombers. The attacks continued. One night, a man who was sleeping with his feet near the edge of the tent was taken. The lion had jumped over the bomber, and had managed to get his paws underneath the canvas of the tent. The man was carried off without a trace. Each night, Patterson waited in a tree or on a platform, hoping to get a shot, but he was helpless and had to listen to the screams of the men being eaten alive. The next day, his remains were found just a short distance from the camp. All that was left were the man's skull, his lower jaw, a few larger bones, and his palm with a few fingers still attached, one of which had a silver ring. The ring and the man's teeth were sent to his widow at his home in India. Patterson and a camp physician named Dr. Rose concocted a plan shortly after this. A tent was left abandoned and a live cow was placed inside as bait. Patterson and Dr. Rose hid in a goods wagon just outside the tent with a clear line of fire from the door of the wagon. For a few hours there was nothing. Then they heard a twig snap and heard a soft thud. This was the lion leaping over the thorn fence. They kept their eyes trained on the hut but in the dead of the night it was difficult to see anything. Patterson wondered why the lion was taking so long inside the tent. Turned out that the lion had never actually entered the tent and was instead outside, quietly stalking the men in the wagon. There was a moment's silence, and then a massive figure sprung at the men. 
The lion, cried Patterson, and both men fired their rifles at the same time. The blinding muzzle flash as well as the reverberating noise of the shots in the wagon caused the lion to bound off. This close encounter with the men in the wagon must have scared the lions off because they did not return to the camp for a considerable amount of time. During this period, work on the railway moved relatively smoothly. Patterson did have some trouble with the workers, but since it isn't super relevant to the lions, we'll breeze over it. If you do want to know more about this, read chapters 3 and 4 of The Man Eaters of Savo. In the time of peace, the workers and Patterson felt a sense of relief and relaxed some of their safety practices. The men started sleeping outside again to keep cool, and the use of bombers was reduced. Patterson writes, As a matter of fact, it was some months before the lions attacked us again. Though from time to time we heard of their depredations in other quarters, not long after our night in the goods wagon, two men were carried off from Railhead, while another was taken from a place called Engonami, about 10 miles away. Within a very short time, this latter place was visited again by the Bruins, two more men being seized, one of whom was killed and eaten, and the other so badly mauled that he died within a few days. As I have said, however, we at Savo enjoyed complete immunity from the attacks, and the coolies, believing their dreaded foes had permanently been deserted from the district, resumed all their usual habits and occupations, and life in the camps returned to its normal routine. Deciding not to let this breathing space go to waste, Patterson and his men constructed a massive trap which he hoped would help catch the lion. It was built using railway supplies, and Patterson even used shots from his rifle to punch holes in the iron to string rope through. The trap was placed partially inside a tent. The trap itself contained an open-ended section the lion could enter. It would then trigger a switch inside which would cause the cage to close. Men slept in the tent as bait, although the cage would make it impossible for the lion to attack them. Eventually, the man-eater's reign of terror recommenced, and the lions attacked and killed men nightly for weeks. The trap was not luring them in, and Patterson recalls feeling hopeless as the lions wreaked havoc on the camps. The locals had long believed the animals to not be lions at all, but spirits of dead ancestors angrily defending their country. Patterson admits that after a while, he started to wonder if perhaps the natives were right, and these were angry spirits here to curse them and the railway. Dozens of men were killed in this space of time. Body parts were being continuously found outside the camps, even the bravest men in the world wouldn't put up with this nightly terrorism, and on the 1st of December, the men had struck work. Patterson writes, When I sent for them, they flocked to my bomber in a body and stated they would not remain at Sabo any longer for anyone or anything. They had come from India on an agreement to work for the government, not to supply food for either lions or the devils. Hundreds of men boarded the next passing train, leaving all their possessions behind. All work on the railway stopped. And for the next few weeks, the men that were brave enough to stay spent all their time lion-proofing the campsite. Shortly before this ultimatum and the workers' strike, Patterson had written to the district officer, a Mr. Whitehead, and requested that he visit Sava to help deal with the war against the lion. Mr. Whitehead wrote back saying yes, and he should be expected by dinner time on December 2nd. The two made plans to have dinner together that night and be briefed about the situation. Dinner time on December 2nd rolled around and Mr. Whitehead had not shown up. Assuming his train was simply late, Patterson ate alone. The next morning, Patterson went searching for the remains of any men unlikely to have been visited by the lions, and he ran into a pale and disheveled Mr. Whitehead. Where on earth have you come from? He exclaimed. Why didn't you turn up to dinner last night? A nice reception you give to a fellow when you invite them to dinner, was his only reply. Why? What's up? That infernal lion of yours nearly did me in for last night, said Mr. Whitehead. Nonsense. You must have dreamed it, Patterson cried in astonishment. For an answer, he turned around and showed him his back. That's not much for a dream, is it? Whitehead's clothes were torn up and the lion had mauled his back. Four claw marks were dragged from his shoulders to the small of his back. It turns out that Whitehead's train was indeed late, and when he arrived he found the station in complete lockdown. On his way to the camp, he and his companion Abdullah were set upon by one of the lions. 
Whitehead was mauled, and the lion grabbed Abdullah by the throat and carried him off. He was never seen again. The next day, another ally arrived. The police commissioner had travelled to Savo with a high-powered rifle ready to assist the hunt. The men had several close encounters with the lion, and at one point it looked like Patterson would shoot one of them dead, but his rifle misfired. After several days, Whitehead and the police commissioner had to depart, and Patterson was left alone yet again. After another close call with one of the lions, a platform was set up and a half-eaten donkey was used as bait. Patterson waited up on the platform all night, waiting for the lion to return for its meal. At one point, he was bumped on the head by an owl that mistook him for a tree branch and he nearly fell. Eventually, one of the lions did return, though it was not the donkey it had come for. It was Patterson. It stalked him for hours, creeping stealthily around the structure, gradually moving closer and closer. Patterson took aim and pulled the trigger. The shot was followed by a massive roar, and Patterson knew his aim had been true. He continued blasting away in the direction of the lion. The remaining workers all called out and rejoiced. At last, one of the man-eaters was dead. The lion's remains were located and brought to the camp. The first man-eater was 3 meters long from nose to tail, and was 1.2 meters tall. It took 8 men to carry it back to camp. The skin was badly damaged from the thorns it had been crawling through. Only a few nights passed before the second man-eater made another appearance. When it did, it attacked three goats that were tied together. It grabbed the first goat and ran off, pulling the others with it. The next morning, a hunting party went out and found the remains of the goats. The lion was still eating his meal. When the men approached it, it roared and ran off and the party pursued it until the ground became too rocky and they could follow no longer. They returned to the goats and set up a platform for a gunman to sit in. Patterson was sure that the lion would return for the rest of its meal. The lion did return and was shot twice by a shotgun, but it was still not enough to bring it down and it escaped yet again. 10 days passed and many of the workers began to hope that the animal had died in the bush from its wounds. Then the lion was spotted nearby. Patterson writes, We awaited daylight with impatience, and at the first glimmer of dawn, we set out to hunt him down. I took a native tracker with me, so that I was free to keep a good lookout, while Mahina followed immediately behind with a martini carbine. Splashes of blood being plentiful, we were able to get along quickly, and we had not proceeded more than a quarter of a mile through the jungle, when suddenly a fierce warning growl was heard right in front of us. Looking cautiously through the bushes, I could see the man-eater glaring in our direction and showing its tusks in an angry snarl. I at once took careful aim and fired. Instantly he sprang out and made a most determined charge down on us. I fired again and knocked him over, but in a second he was up once more and coming for me as fast as he could in his crippled condition. A third shot had no apparent effect, so I put my hand out for the martini, hoping to stop him with it. To my dismay, however, it was not there. The terror of the sudden charge had proved too much for Mahina, and both he and the carbine were by this time well on their way up a tree. In the circumstances, there was nothing to do but follow suit, which I did without loss of time. Even as it was, I had barely enough time to swing myself up out of his reach before he arrived at the foot of the tree. When the lion found he was too late, he started to limp back into the thicket, but by this time I had seized the carbine from Mahina, and the first shot I fired from it seemed to give him his quietus, for he fell over and lay motionless, rather foolishly. I at once scrambled down from the tree and walked towards him. To my surprise and to little alarm, he jumped up and attempted another charge. This time, however, a martini bullet in the chest and another in his head finished him for good. He dropped in his tracks not five yards away from me and died gamely, biting savagely at a branch which had fallen from the tree. The second lion measured three meters from snout to tail and was 118 centimeters tall. With the man-eater threat eliminated, the workforce returned and the Savo Railway Bridge was completed on the 7th of February 1899. Although the rails were destroyed by German soldiers during the First World War, the stone foundations were left standing and the bridge was subsequently repaired. The workers, who in earlier months had all but threatened to kill him, presented Patterson with a silver bowl in appreciation for the risks he had undertaken on their behalf, with the following inscription. Sir, we, your overseer, 
timekeepers, mystaris, and workmen present you with this bowl as a token of our gratitude to you for your bravery in killing two man-eating lions at great risk to your own life, thereby saving us from the fate of being devoured by these terrible monsters who nightly broke into our tents and took our fellow workers from our side. In presenting you with this bowl, we add all our prayers for your long life, happiness, and prosperity. We shall forever remain, sir, your grateful servants. This was dated at Savo, January 30, 1899. There's not really an exact number for how many people were killed by the lions, but no less than 28 Indians had died, in addition to scores of unfortunate African workers who no official record was kept. After 25 years as Patterson's floor rugs, the lion's skins were sold to the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago in 1924 for a sum of $5,000. The skins arrived in the museum in very poor condition. The lions were reconstructed and are now on permanent display along with their skulls. I'll end this story with an excerpt taken from The Spectator from March 3rd, 1900, which had an article entitled The Lions That Stopped the Railway. It was not the sport, but the duty of kings, and was in itself a title to be a ruler of men. Theseus, who cleared the roads of beasts and robbers, Hercules the lion killer, St George the dragon slayer, and all the rest of their class owed to this their everlasting fame. From the story of the Savo River we can appreciate their services to man even at this distant time, when the jungle twinkled with hundreds of lamps, as the shouts went from camp to camp that the first lion was dead, as the hurrying crowds fell prostrate in the middle of the forest laying their heads on his feet, and the Africans danced savage and ceremonial dances of thanksgiving, Mr. Patterson must have realised in no common way what it was to have been a hero and deliverer in the days when men was not yet undisputed lord of the creation, and might pass at any moment under the savage dominion of the beasts. <laughs> There you have it guys, that is the story of the Savo Man-Eating Lions, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, quite an interesting story, it had been adapted into a number of movies I believe, um, which have been you know, pretty well received. Uh, yeah, the, the, the lions are really interesting. Um, there's so much information on them, the, you know, the exact death toll is contested, um, you know, one source says that it's 135 people. There's other sources that say it's more, there's some that say it's closer to about 50, um, so it's hard to tell. The reason it's kind of hard to tell, and it's kind of an, an annoying and sad, and like everything, it's a little bit of a racist reason. So any white people that were attacked and killed, obviously, I'm not saying obviously on my behalf, but obviously back then they were recorded. Um, the Indian workers who were employed by the British government also were recorded, but a lot of the native African workers who were just there, um, no, there was no record of them. So whenever they got carried off, um, they were not recorded properly. Um, there were also like a lot of other ways that people died. Um, there was another problem as well that in the Savo River, um, the African slave trade, which was slavery um, between African tribes, um, was going on um, in that area. And so a lot of dead bodies were just thrown in the river. So some of these may, may have been counted as deaths from the from the lions um, when they shouldn't be. So it is hard to tell. Wikipedia says it's 135. So let's just go with that because Wikipedia is, of course, the holy grail of facts. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode, guys. This one was a lot of research. It took me a few days to read and uh, write a script for this one. So if you did enjoy this, please do me a favor and uh, share it, like it, follow the 
thing, you know, do the things. If you feel like that, do that for me. That would be very lovely. Um, also, before I go, I just want to give a quick shout out to the very lovely people who have sent me messages um, on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, saying very nice things about the show that they enjoy it that they're looking forward to new episodes that's so lovely to hear i really appreciate that and please don't stop give me more i love compliments i'm a little compliment piggy oink, oink, oink. eat me up fuck <laughs> why did i do that why did i just say that why am i recording it and i'm still gonna upload this it's not gonna get cut out that's going up that's gonna shit that's gonna outlive me me saying oink 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 will outlive me my grandkids are gonna hear this fuck all right guys <laughs> that'll do it i'll see you in another week with another episode of the man eaters podcast thank you for your time have a great night and uh stay safe out there <laughs>